please take the time to uh, make use of our children's programming this morning. With that in mind, let me pray for us. Father God, thank you so much for who you are, for what you have done. Father, thank you that you are the one who brings light, that you are the one who shines upon us, Father, and that at the foot of the cross, Lord, the ground is level, that your forgiveness is available, Lord, that your power that you give us through your Holy Spirit allows us to fight and move against sin. And so as we look at this passage this morning, I pray that you would give us sober hearts and minds, Lord, to recognize... um, Recognize the seriousness of it, Lord, and also the hope and joy that is found in you, Lord Jesus, and the gospel. So we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you watch the news with any regularity or you receive push notifications on your phone from a news source, you likely heard that last month the founder of Playboy, Hugh Hefner, died at age 91. And up until his last breath, he sought to promote the hedonistic worldview that he had devoted his life to. Now, to be sure, pornography did not begin with Hugh Hefner, but he was the champion who brought it out of the shadows. And so once Playboy was mainstream, porn could be discussed openly and without shame. In fact, a recent article in ABC News details how revolutionary Playboy was in its day and age. The article says this, in 1953, a time when states could legally ban contraceptives, when the word pregnant was not allowed on I Love Lucy, Hefner published the first issues of Playboy, featuring naked photos of Marilyn Monroe, which were, at that time, taken years earlier. And in an editorial promise that the magazine would cover humor, sophistication, and spice. Within a year, the circulation neared 200,000. Within five years, it had, dropped, it had gone to one million. And by the 1970s, the magazine had a circulation of more than seven million readers. People who promoted pornography said... It's just a harmless foray into fantasy, but we know better. In fact, today, 64 years after Playboy was launched, we are seeing real human costs to society's porn addiction, an addiction which dehumanizes people. It also includes countless women who are exploited and slaves to the industry. In fact, Hollywood celebrities like Russell Brand and Pamela Anderson have spoken out about the damaging effects of porn. Brand posted a YouTube video warning of these dangers, and Anderson, a former Playboy model, co-authored a Wall Street Journal article entitled, Take the Pledge, No More Indulging in Porn. And this is what she writes in the article. She says, pornography has a corrosive effect on a man's soul and on his ability to function as husband and by extension as father. This is a public hazard of unprecedented seriousness given how freely available anonymously accessible, and easily disseminated pornography is nowadays. Now, these are the words of a woman who worked in the industry. And that's just the tip of the iceberg of the human costs. But now we have to stop and ask, why is it that so many people are drawn to this industry? And the answer may be found in Hugh Hefner's own life. In fact, in a Vanity Fair article from 2010, Hefner recounted how he grew up in what he said was a home without a lot of love or emotion. He said, the key to my life was the need to feel loved. The need to feel loved. Wow. Now that's a powerful emotion, and one that is certainly not limited to our desire for sex, but can be distorted by sexual desire. In fact, the Playboy empire in particular and the pornography industry in general were largely based in Hefner's mind on this need to be loved. 
In this article, the interviewer asked a pointed question. He said, who broke your heart, Hugh? And here's how Hefner responded. The first girl I married. I was very naive. She told me before we were married that she'd had an affair while I was in the army, and it was probably the most devastating experience of my life. It doomed us from the start. But I think it gave me permission to live the life I've lived. I'll take that in for just a second. Hugh Hefner said that the reason that led him to start the modern pornography industry was a broken heart. And so as I ponder that statement, I wonder if there is more to it. What was Hugh Hefner really after? Perhaps it was something deeper. As author Bruce Marshall asserts, a man knocking on the door of a brothel is looking for God. I think there's a lot of truth in that. Friends, let's not underestimate how much Hugh Hefner's broken heart has impacted the sexualized landscape of our 21st century American culture. And while some of us may be sitting in here saying, good riddance to Hugh Hefner, the media narrative that is out there is completely different. In fact, many people are pointing to him as a champion of the First Amendment, a liberator of the shackles of repressive thinking, one of the world's most influential icons. And so with those reports... We see the tension of the world that we live in. While some laud Hefner as a liberator, he is seen by many as the man who helped bring the enslavement of sexual addictions. And so church, I ask you today, which one is it? Is he a liberator or a slave master? And I think our scriptures will point and shine light on this. Well, Hefner's work may have been sincerely motivated by the need to be loved, a desire we all possess. He actually created a world that championed lust over love. And so the legacy of Playboy is men fantasizing about other women while they are with women they actually love. It's men and women preferring porn sex to romantic sex, and it's people struggling with addictive behavior. And the worst part of this is that it's been normalized in our world. In fact, even the church isn't immune. The website Covenant Eyes, which is a great resource for filtering software, offers these statistics. 64% of Christian men and 15% of Christian women admit to watching porn at least once a month. And sadly, I suspect that no one in this room has not been touched or affected by the pornographic culture of our world. This isn't the 1950s anymore. Now, you may be sitting here saying, well, Pastor Bob, I have never looked at pornography. (laughs) I am not affected by this. Well, perhaps you haven't surfed the internet looking for explicit material, but maybe your children or grandchildren have. Or maybe their friends have tried to get them to do this. In fact, I've I've spoken to far too many people who've been exposed to pornography, and it was at a friend's house as early as fifth grade. That same website, Covenant Eyes, I mentioned before, tells us that 90% of boys and 60% of girls say they were first exposed to porn before the age of 18. Have you ever walked in one of the malls around here and seen the advertisements for the lingerie store? Maybe you've lingered too long on a sex scene in a movie or read through the pages of a steamy romance novel. Or maybe your spouse is engaged in this type of activity. Or maybe you have a friend who, in the wake of the Harvey Weinstein scandal, started to post on social media, hashtag me too, because they were harassed or abused sexually. Friends, let's not be naive to think that we are not affected by this epidemic. Because Hugh Hefner bought the lie that unrestrained sex is the key to the good life. And that lie is now affecting all of us to some extent. In response to Hefner's death, author author Russell Moore offered some profound words, and here's what he said. The sign of the good life is not hedonism, but crucifixion. The sign of the good life is not a bunny, but a cross. 
The effects of Hugh Hefner's broken heart have broken God's heart. And for this, the blood of Jesus ran red on the cross. But it does leave us with an important question to ask today. How should Christians live in a dark world? And this is the key question before us in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 3 to 14, particularly as it relates to sexuality in a dark world. We find ourselves living at a time flooded with sexual images, and we're not so different than the early church, friends. They, too, had to wrestle with how to live a life worthy of the gospel in a similar culture. Now, before we dive into the passage, let me offer a shameless plug for our Underground Sessions event that's going to be this coming Saturday from 7 to 9 p.m., It's going to cover some of these topics, I think, in a very helpful way, and so I trust it will be beneficial if you come. Um, You really don't want to miss it. I also believe our passage today offers four key things that we can consider now as we navigate the dangerous terrain of our sexualized world. First, we need to spiritually recognize the gift of sex. Second, we need to see how that gift can be corrupted. In response to that corruption, we need a community of light to help us. And finally, and most importantly, we need the waking power of the gospel. So let's first consider the gift of sex. When Paul Paul does tell the believers to avoid sexual immorality in this passage, he also affirms the goodness of sex. Here's what he writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not be named even among you, as is proper among the saints. Now, in verses 1 and 2, Paul had just told the believers that they need to be imitators of God, and literally that they should, they should model the self-sacrificial love of Christ, which is important in understanding his word picture in verse 3. Because the use of the word but here in verse 3 introduces a new set of moral imperatives. Look at that triad of terms. Sexual immorality, impurity, covetousness, which some translations translate as greed, now, the word for sexual immorality, you might know if you've done any word studies in the Bible, is the word pornea, the Greek word pornea, where we get our English word pornography from. Now, some older versions translate this as fornication, which is commonly used to refer to two unmarried people having sex. And while it's important to know that pornea clearly means this, it goes far beyond that to include any kind of sexual activity outside of the context of a one-man, one-woman relationship in marriage. Thus, in the context of the ancient world and the early church, pornea would have included premarital sex, men taking advantage of slave girls, adultery, prostitution, homosexuality, and incestuous relationships, just to name a few. This is made even stronger since it's paired with the word impurity, a word that Jesus uses to point to the deeper issues of the hearts of individuals. In other words, sexual morality and purity encompass not just the actions of individuals, but the heart motivations and thought life as well. Now, what's even more interesting and profound is this pair is them getting paired with the word covetousness or greed, which Pastor Dave already did a great word study on greed as it relates to materialism um, a couple weeks ago. Uh, And it certainly was an issue in the ancient world of materialism, but when you take all these into context, what I think Paul is likely getting at here is the idea of sexual greed. John Stott offers this helpful observation. He says, Paul turns from self-sacrifice in verses 1 and 2 to its very opposite, self-indulgence, from genuine love to the perversion of it called lust, namely the coveting of somebody else's body for selfish gratification. And so we can see how our modern-day understanding of pornography can aptly be termed sexual greed. 
But in the first century, things were, things were bad. <laughs> I mean, illicit sexual activity was an enormous problem for the Gentile Christians to overcome in the early church, which is why Paul spent a lot of time talking about this. You may remember that in Ephesus, there was a temple to the Greek goddess Artemis, and I can't even put the, the picture of it up here because it's inappropriate, who was regarded as the fertility goddess. And so not surprisingly, there were even sacred sexual encounters in the temple. And given this rampant sexual immorality in the Greco-Roman world, you can see why the Jews were long appalled by the behavior of Gentiles and considered them impure. In fact, in his book, A Fellowship of Difference, Dr. Scott McKnight describes an eye-opening walk he once took down the Roman roads of ancient Pompeii. The volcano erupted there in 79 AD, and it preserved a vivid snapshot of Roman culture in that century when the church was born. McKnight writes this. He says, it is not an exaggeration to say the city was swamped with erotic images. Explicit pornography was everywhere. The sexual reality across the empire of which Pompeii was a typical example was a lack of total sexual inhibition. Now, I offered some more sex, uh, some more. Um, historical examples of this during my run-through the other day, and it made Pastor Dave blush. So I'm going to refer from going even further. But trust me, trust me, if you are of the mindset that today is as bad as it's been, trust me, it, was, it, it pales in comparison to what the first century had. Las Vegas or Bangkok has nothing on first century Roman society. And this was the world into which the church was born and into which it introduced a more constrained sexual ethic, which is why Paul offers a strong rebuke. He says, these things should not even be named among you. Or as the NIV puts it, there should not even be a hint of these things among you. If you want to be an imitator of God and walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, sexual restraint and a proper sexual ethic need to be in place in our lives And Paul goes on to discuss how this affects our speech. Look at verse 4. He says, Let there be no filthiness or foolish talk or crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Not only were they engaging in these activities, but it is apparent in the way they talk. And because this context is about sexual themes, the speech that Paul is bringing up here is likely in relation to that topic. So this is the type of joking that you might hear in a seventh grade locker room that degrades the high value that should be placed on sexuality. Literally what Paul is saying here is this is vulgar talk. It's a problem and was a problem in the ancient world and too often is also today. But here's what I don't want you to miss in this verse in particular. Paul has painted an extremely negative view of sexuality in the ancient world and then he offers a complete contrast here. He says, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Huh? What is he talking about? Seems out of the blue. Well, he's getting at two things, I think. First, thanksgiving and gratitude should be the mark of every believer in response to the grace and redemption God has given us. And secondly, we should live in such a way that it honors him. In this context, that covers the topic of sex. But after all, we have to admit that sex was God's idea. Again, John Stott is helpful here. He says that while sexual impurity and greed are both self-centered, thanksgiving is the exact opposite. And so the antidote required, it's the recognition of God's generosity. He says this, the reason Christians should dislike and avoid vulgarity is not because we have a warped view of sex and are ashamed or afraid of it, but because we have a high and holy view of it in its right place 
God's good gift, which we do not want to see cheapened. All God's gifts, including sex, are subjects to thanksgiving rather than joking. And to thank God for them is the way to preserve their worth in their worth as the blessings of a loving creator. So here's a question. Do we view sex as a blessing from God? Because if we do, we will approach it with thanksgiving rather than greed. Because like grace, it's something we don't deserve, but it is a gift that God gives to us. However, it's a gift that must be opened at the right time or it will lead to pain and heartache. Which is why Solomon, the wisest man in the world, so wisely writes in Song of Solomon 3.5, Daughters of Israel, I charge you by the gazelles and by the does of the field, do not arouse or awaken love until it so desires. In other words, you need to wait for the right time. And as Christians, we tend to shout what feels like from the margins of society, don't do it until you're married, which is true and right. But sometimes we can give the impression that we have a negative view of sex. And when we do that, we miss the wonder of God's story. Because remember, at creation, at the beginning, God created humanity, male and female, in his image. And in Genesis 1.28, he says this, God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the uh, heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. One of God's purposes of sex was procreation, which is a crucial An important element because with the coming of the sexual revolution in the 1960s and the rise of the pornographic culture, the primary purpose of sex is now seen by many as pleasure at all costs. And when pleasure becomes primary, and in some cases the only reason for sex, it can easily become an idol and supplant God on the throne of our hearts. But the Bible also affirms sexual pleasure within marriage, Genesis 2.24, Therefore, a man shall leave his mother and father, or father and mother, and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. God affirms that sex is for bonding within marriage. The next week, we're going to talk about marriage. We're coming to the marriage passage, so I'll save comments until then. But pleasure is certainly part of this as well. There's a reason that God includes passages in the Bible like Proverbs 5 and whole books like Song of Solomon because sex is a good, it's a wonderful thing when framed properly in the context of marriage. Thus, as we talk about sex, we have to affirm that it's a gift because it was God's idea and we have to have a sacred view of it and we have to talk to our children about this gift so that they see that it's special and good when opened in the right context. However, we also have to balance this with the sober reality of the messages of our fallen world. And so as my friend Drew Newkirk says, who's our speaker for Underground Sessions, anything good can be corrupted by the darkness. And the same is true for the gift of sex. Thus, when we see the goodness of sex, we are able to recognize when corruption and darkness come in. And that's our second point, the corruption of sex. Paul's already discussed the dangers of sex outside the context of marriage, and now he furthers his point by talking about how God views our engagement in this corruption. Look at verse 5. He says, For you may be sure of this, everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. What does he mean here? Paul essentially says, to sum up his last point, if you're a believer here, you already know this. You know that the sexual ethic of this world is not right. 
Sexual morality, impurity, and greed are not marks of a life changed by Christ. And if you are engaging in these things, you are showing yourself to be ungrateful of the redemption you have received. Let me say that one more time. If you are engaging in these things, you are showing yourself to be ungrateful of the redemption you have received. If we're living a life of greed, a selfish life, and not one of thanksgiving, and if we continue to do so, we have shown ourselves to have no inheritance because our life has not truly been transformed by the gospel. And with that in mind, Paul goes on to warn the church of the effects of false teachings in this area. Look at verse 6 and 7. He says, let no one deceive you with empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. Let no one deceive you with empty words. So Paul, as he often did, is warning the believers of people who are trying to justify these activities based on theological reasoning. In Ephesus, it was well known that the believers were being deceived by Gnostic teaching about sexuality. Now, Gnosticism, if you're not familiar, was an early church heresy that emphasized the difference between body and soul. Bodily sins could be committed without damage to the soul and without impurity. And so as a result, you can engage in sexually immoral conduct without actually committing a sin against the soul. You could live a life of license without any fear of judgment. And what Paul is saying here is this is antithetical to the Christian sexual ethic. In our modern world, sometimes we can have a similar dynamic. There may be Christians who sometimes say, hey, I'm forgiven spiritually, and so I can do whatever I want with my body. But that's not true. And Paul says here, one day all of us will stand before the judge and give an account of our lives. Thus, don't live in disobedience. In fact, Paul makes a similar case to the Corinthian church in his first letter to them. By all accounts, they may have been even worse than the church in Ephesus. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 6, 12 to 20, Paul is dealing with the issue of Christian freedom and the topic of sexuality comes up. And so he affirms again the purpose of sex within marriage, that the two become one flesh and are bonded together, and says that this is what happens when you engage in, prosti- when you engage in prostitution. You become one with a prostitute, and that shouldn't be. Then he goes on to remind them who they are in Christ, verse 17. He says, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one with him in spirit. Flee from sexual immorality, because every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God with your body. See, what he's saying here is that we are temples if we are united to Christ. It's an image he used in Ephesians 2 already. He's saying the Holy Spirit lives inside of us. And don't unite yourself with those who don't know the Lord. In fact, flee, get as far away as you possibly can from sexual immorality because it's not just affecting you, it's affecting God and it's affecting the church. There are others that are grieved by this. You are not your own. Don't be partners in sex or life with those who are disobedient. Now, this dangerous Gnostic teaching was prevalent in the early days of the church, but today we have our own false teaching about this that we have to combat. Don't you know that the cultural narrative of our day is all about personal freedom and happiness? What is the mantra we hear over and over again? Follow your heart. Do whatever 
You discover your own truth and no one can tell you otherwise. And as it relates to sexuality and relationships, people, especially young people, often think no one can tell them how to live sexually, especially if they're happy. But is that what the scriptures are saying here? The Bible warns against satisfying our physical appetites because there can be damaging consequences. In fact, author Brent Kunkel in his book, A Practical Guide to Culture, offers a story about when he was on a panel discussion at a high school camp in California. While he's there, he says, a girl approached the microphone to ask a question, and she said this. She says, I have a question for my friend. If you're in a sexually active Christian relationship that is healthy and not dependent or defined by sex, can you, as an individual in this situation, be 100% committed to Christ? given the fact that you've prayed about this situation and that you're doing these actions out of love and not lust. Well, Brett responded gently but firmly, and he, he said, you know, the only healthy sexual relationship is between a husband and a wife. That's what Scripture teaches. And so two unmarried high school students who are having sex is unhealthy by definition. So after he finished answering the question, she sat down, and another female student approached the microphone and admitted this is my question. She said, this is my relationship. I've been in it for over a year now. I've run this by psychologists, by nurses, by church leaders. We prayed about it for 10 months and came to this decision. So are you saying that I am not 100% committed to Christ? Well, Brett says he softened his posture because he realized in that moment, this is about a, a person, not simply about a theoretical situation. But he pressed forward with the truth and he says, This is actually a decision you don't need to pray about because God has already spoken. And sex between a boyfriend and girlfriend is sin. And if you thought you heard God say that is okay, that wasn't God. Now, after he finished responding, tears streamed down her face as she sat down. The end of the story is that this girl was so convicted that she called her boyfriend, ended the relationship, and repented of her sin. Now, as I share this, there's a few things I want to acknowledge. First, Because of the cultural narrative and various teachings on sexuality our children may experience, we shouldn't be surprised when this comes up. And so we need to be gracious, but also firm in our responses. And secondly, we can't shy away from the truth. We have to leave room for the Holy Spirit to come and convict. Now, if you're a middle or high school student here today, or a young adult, What I want to implore you is this. Do not let anyone deceive you with empty words. God has created sex for our good, and he's placed boundaries on it for a reason, because he is a loving father who cares about us. Because while sex is good, we should not arouse or awaken love too soon, because it's going to lead to pain. Now, when I talk with young people about sex, I often say this. You have to remember that God created sex as a oneness bond between you and the other person in the context of marriage. And so unless you are able and prepared to unite yourself financially, spiritually, socially, emotionally with that other person, you are not ready to have sex with them. You are not ready to have sex, period. In fact, Pastor J.R. Vassar puts it this way, it is unloving to have sex before you are married. It's a selfish act because you can end that relationship at any time. You're asking the other person to give themselves fully when you are not willing to do the same in return. Here's how sexual bonding works. 
Let me give you the picture of two gloves. Imagine two gloves with Velcro on them. Imagine this glove here is you. Okay. Imagine this glove over here is the other person. And when you have sex, what happens? You are bonded and united together. And that's what's supposed to happen in the context of marriage. But as soon as you end that relationship and it doesn't work out, here's what happens. Do you hear that ripping apart? It's painful. While you may be not experiencing a real divorce, you will be experiencing an emotional divorce, and it's painful, especially in your teen years. In fact, stats tell us that the average young person today experiences one to three emotional divorces before they get married. Let no one deceive you with empty words. Sex outside of marriage will lead to pain. In their fabulous book entitled Hooked, New Science of How Casual Sex is Affecting Our Children, authors Joe Mulcahy and Frida Bush offer an in-depth look at how sex is now affecting the, has been affecting the brain of young people. One eye-opening statistic they point out is this. When young people begin having sex, when they are 16 years old, they are 44% more like, likely to have five or more sexual partners by the time they're in their 20s. The authors go on to state this obvious conclusion. If people of any age become sexually involved before marriage, the intensity of that desire for repetition of sexual activity can overwhelm everything else in the relationship. Now, while sex before marriage is certainly an issue in our culture, the rise of internet pornography is taking an even greater toll on people of all ages. In particular, studies and stories are coming out now about how young people in their teens and 20s are not able to have sex with a partner because they watch so much pornography they can't be aroused any other way. Sex is no longer about intimacy. It's about personal gratification, and the other person is seen as a sex object. So in his book, Wired for Intimacy, How Pornography Hijacks the Male Brain, Dr. William Struthers, a behavioral neuroscientist at Wheaton College, comments on the power pornography can have over men in particular. And he says this, It is not the shouting of pornography that gives it so much power over men. It is the whispering of the lie of sexual fulfillment that prey on our human insecurities. Pornography shapes and rewires us in such a way that we become unable to see women as we should. We can no longer direct our sexual drives in appropriate ways. Porn narrows our ability to live a good and holy life. Indeed, let no one deceive you with empty words, especially the lies of the pornography culture. Now, this is a great resource I recommend to anybody, but in particular, if you're a parent who has a son and you want to know more about this topic, I would read this book. Additionally, I would note that statistics are telling us that 33% of women are now viewing porn, albeit for different reasons than men. But still, it is killing the intimacy of sex because women increasingly feel the need to perform for their partner. Now, before we leave this section, I would exhort parents You need to talk to your kids. Now, it's going to look differently at different ages, but we need to talk about aspects of sexuality. As parents, we need to be the authority on sex for our children, not the culture. We need to beat the culture to the punch. And sadly, that means having discussions earlier and earlier. Because the reality is our sexualized culture is corrupting a generation. And if I can say, on a personal note... As a father of a young, young daughter, it's heartbreaking. 
Because the conversations I will have to have at a young age are daunting and the dangers will always be there. This is the frontline battlefield of spiritual warfare of our time and we need to fight. Now I spent a lot of time unpacking those first two points. Let me briefly share with you two solutions Paul offers in response. To confront the culture of darkness, the first thing we need is a community of light. It's a community of light. Because no battle should be fought alone. And the same is true in this war. As Paul offers some sober words to remind us where we came from in verse 8, he says this, For you at one time were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light. At one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Wow. And after spending a few verses on the practical challenges of fighting sin in the Christian life, Paul turns to theological truth, and he reminds us who we are now that we're united to Christ. But take this in for just a moment. Before Christ, we were not just in darkness, we were darkness, and we loved it. And God woke us up and made us alive. As Paul so clearly points out in chapter 2, we came into the light. But take notice, here he says, we are light in the Lord. And Paul's hearkening back to those opening chapters where he reminded the believers that their identity was in Christ. We are not light because of our works. We are light in Christ. It's his righteousness. It's his purity. It's his light that shines through us. Therefore, because of Christ, Because we have been justified by the cross, because we have been covered by the blood of the Lamb, because we have been adopted into the family of God, we can now walk as children of light with God as our Father. And what does that look like? Verse 9 and 10, he says, For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true, and try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. The fruit of the light is what? Goodness, righteousness, truth, which stands in opposition to to the lies of the sins of verse 3. Everything that is part of our community should be about good, right, and true. And by pursuing these things, we reflect the character of God and discern what is pleasing to the Lord. In other words, the church, God's new society, the new humanity, the people of God should burn brighter so bright that the light of Christ drives away darkness. Look at what Paul says next. In verse 11, he says, Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them, for it is shameful even to speak of the things they do in secret. See, the light brings fruit, but the darkness is unfruitful. And it is here that Paul shows us the importance of the community of light. It's the exposure of the dark work in our hearts. Because you see, Here Paul is not talking about those outside the church, but those inside the church. It's not a warning to avoid relationships with unbelievers, but to avoid the type of behavior that is not pleasing to God and that does not reflect who he is. And that's a good word for us. Which brings us to this application of the community of light. It's exposing the darkness. But please take note. What Paul is saying here is that the purpose of bringing inappropriate conduct into the light is not to punish people, is not to shame them, but it is to restore them, to bring conviction, to help them be free of the bondage of the unfruitful works of darkness and the power they have over them. It's to help our brothers and sisters. 
So at this point, I have to offer a sobering reality because as a pastor, I've heard many stories. And I have to admit that most people do not feel comfortable sharing their sexual struggles with others in the church. This is true especially as it relates to pornography struggles for fear that others aren't mature enough to handle those confessions. And in some cases, that certainly may be true. But church, we need to be better at this because there are many people who are struggling and simply won't talk. In fact, according to Barner Research, more than half of teens seek out pornography, and the numbers are much higher for young adults, 18 to 24. Even when they aren't actively seeking it out, nearly 80% of teens and young adults say they regularly come across porn. And yet, astonishingly, the vast majority of teens, 79%, say they have no one, no one in their life to help them avoid pornography. And those who do are most likely to say it's a girlfriend or boyfriend and not a parent or a spiritual advisor. Wow. I mean, that's just teens and young adults. That doesn't even touch adults who are struggling with this. I think in many ways we have done a disservice because we've created a culture of judgment and taboo rather than grace, safety, and restoration within the church. But we need the community of light to help us expose the unfruitful works of darkness and break their power over us. We need to be better for the sake of our brothers and sisters. Some of us in this room have been walking a lonely path for a long time. We feel nothing but shame and guilt and are longing for someone to help us. And my exhortation is this today. Find someone to confess to and who will walk with you in the healing process. Now, that's delicate because you need to find someone of whom you have significant trust. And so let me say, as your pastor, I invite you to talk with me. Talk with Pastor Dave. We promise to be a safe place to share your struggles because we need a community of light gracious enough to help us walk in authenticity as we wage this war because it's crucial to fighting the battle against the corruption of sexuality in our culture. But that's not all. This is how Paul finishes, considering our greatest weapon, the waking power of the gospel. Because it is here in our fight against sin that the power of the gospel comes in because we can have accountability partners. We can have filtering software. We can go to church and and Bible studies, but ultimately we need in our core the waking power of the gospel and the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit to help us fight. Paul says in verse 13, but when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore it says, awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead and Christ's light will shine on you. Paul is literally saying light makes everything visible. And before the light is turned on, you're wandering in the dark. And this is the way many of us approach the Christian life. Now, I don't know everybody's spiritual state in this room. In fact, some in here may be dead and they need to come to life. You need the light of Christ to shine on you for the first time and come out of the coffin and experience the saving power of Christ. And that only happens by the power of the gospel and the grace of God. But others of us in here may be Christians, but our Christian life feels like we're trying to find a light switch in the middle of the dark. Have you ever experienced this, Drew? Can you help me out here? You're wandering around in the middle of the night. Maybe you've woken up, you need to go to the bathroom, and uh, you're wandering around, you stub your toe on a dresser, and you say some words hopefully nobody ever heard, uh, other people didn't hear, and you're wandering around, you're getting really frustrated, you can't find that light switch, and you just want to give up. 
You're wandering around and you're wandering around. You're bleary-eyed, you're groggy. And this is the way your Christian life feels like. You're a sleepy Christian. And what Paul is getting at here in this passage is that there are people who are dead that need to come to life, yes, but there are also sleepy Christians who need to wake up in their fight against sin. To do that, you need the light of Christ to shine on you. We need the alarm clock to start blaring. We need to... You, you know what I'm talking about. You need to jump out of bed. You need to turn on the light switch and let the light of Christ shine on you. Do not acquiesce to sin. And so Paul's que- the question in this passage is, how do Christians live in the dark world? It's simply this. Wake up and walk in the light. Now, I don't know how everyone, everybody's story in here, but I know this. There are some of us that are probably struggling with sexual sin, and we're ashamed to bring that into the light. But the amazing truth is this. You don't need to be ashamed because the light of Christ shining on us brings an end to shame because it shows us the finished work of Christ on the cross. And at the foot of the cross, the ground is level and it is there that God's grace never runs dry, that he comes and he takes away our sin, that he removes our shame. Frederick Buechner once powerfully said this. He said, lust is the craving of salt for salt of a man who is dying for thirst. And what you're looking for is water. What we need is light. And friend, the light, friends, the light has come. We must allow that light to shine on us. Worship team, would you come? And as we close, let me challenge us as a community of light to grow in three areas. If you are struggling, you need these resources. And the first resource is this. It's accountability. Find someone who is trusted and safe. Because here's the reality. Sexual struggles, in particular pornography, are addictive. In fact, the chemical effect studies have told us on the brain is that it's similar to what heroin does to the brain. Do you know what that means? This is something that will not be beaten overnight. And it may be a lifetime struggle. We need help to achieve victory no matter where you are in this. Accountability needs to be in place. And accountability needs to be a place of encouragement. We need to create a culture of grace where we're not afraid of people's sins. See, sometimes we're okay with people confessing some sins to us, but not other sins. And we shouldn't be surprised because the church is a community of sinners who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, yes, but are still sinners, And so this process, we need to be reminded of the gospel day in and day out. And finally, we need discipleship. We grow as disciples as we fight against sin in our lives. And so we need to get into discipling environments and learn how to be people who are seeking the good, the right, and the true. So as we conclude, let me invite you one more time. Let me challenge you to attend our underground sessions on Saturday and learn more about this very real topic. Again, I don't know how everybody's walked in here today. Some of us may indeed be struggling with sexual sin. We're in a relationship we should not be in and we're doing things we should not do. The unfruitful unfruitful works of darkness have clouded our mind. Maybe you're in a cycle of shame and you're looking at pornography and you're afraid to tell anyone. My encouragement to you today is this. Confess, repent, come into the light. 
and let the blood of Jesus wash over you as you receive his mercy and his grace. Receive the hope and healing you're looking for. And once that happens, you can wake up and walk in the light.